Behind the Scenes of Venture Capital. This week, we speak with Kyle Harrison, general partner at Contrary. He goes through everything that happens in a venture capitalist day. How do these guys even find the companies you're gonna invest in? How do you invest over a 10-year time horizon? How often are they right? More importantly, how often are they wrong? He goes through everything that is a misconception about the industry from an outsider's perspective. Kyle is fantastic. I learned a ton. Make sure to like, subscribe, share this with all your friends. As always, we're learning together. Let's dive in. Hello, 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 and welcome to Colby Howard Wants Your Job, the show where we find out what the heck everyone else does with their day. I have a very special guest today, Kyle Harris. How's it going? How you doing? Doing good, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. A general partner, general partner, general partner. at Contrary, super thoughtful about all things venture capital, um, which is why he is the perfect person to go through exactly what a venture capitalist does and... Starting out, this is, we are filming this on November 8th, the day that OpenAI went down for two hours <laughs> and shook the, the tech world. That's right. No one could do their homework. Yeah. No one could chatbot their chatbots. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a monumental day in, in right. the technology world. Um, but to start out, quick detour, zagging right away. Um, I, you went to BYU, correct? Undergrad. Undergrad, Brigham Young. I remember when I was interning at Goldman my sophomore summer, you had the Ivy Kids. I was at Davidson, 1,700-person school in the South, and you had Indiana Business School undergrad okay. and BYU kids. There you go. And the BYU kids crushed it. <laughs> and it feels like a super under-the-radar school. What's what's going on there? Clean living, man. <laughs> <We're> not... <laughs> We're not, we're not drinking. We're not, you know, doing drugs. We're just grinding on Wall Street. That's I it. love it. Yeah, man. I think it's just like, it's just a very focused group of people mm -hmm. who want to be very successful. They worked hard and were extremely smart. Anyway, to start out very high level, I think this is fascinating because most of us sit down at our desk and we think about the next hour, the next day, maybe the next month at our jobs. If you're an investor in the stock market, you're maybe thinking about a six-month or year-long time horizon. Private equity, your hit rate needs to be pretty high, and you're thinking about maybe a five-year timeline. You're a venture capitalist, and your hit rate might be 10% <laughs> and over a 10-year period, and you are doing incredibly well. How, how do you think about how that mindset is so much different than most other people's? Um, well, I think it's, I think every investor has their own scorecard. So I don't know that it's a blanket. Everyone's doing well because there are certainly like pockets <laughs> of time, right? Yeah. There are a lot of people that were doing super well in 2021 and now are feeling significant amounts of pain. So mm -hmm. you don't want to ever count your chickens until they hatch, right? Or whatever. Um, so I think the like performance is relative, but the job is unique because you're trying to predict very long timeframes. And it's very difficult to say like, what's going to happen in 10 years. And I think it's more a question of like, what do you see the early seeds of happening today? And what does that mean in the future? And like, what do you have to believe for a company to be big? Mm -hmm. So I think I spent a lot of time trying to predict like what is likely to happen. I don't know that we would ever describe ourselves as predicting the future. Mm -hmm. but you're trying to predict like specific behaviors, trends, whatever that have staying power. Like, is it likely 
that people will be doing something they've been doing for a long time the exact same way. Is mm -hmm. that likely to stick around or is it more likely that people are going to change their behaviors or whatever? So there's actually quite a bit of like human psychology wrapped up into a venture investor's attempt to figure out what's going to happen. And so there's so much to talk about just in that. When you walk into the office in the morning, you think about Slack, you think about email, you think about meetings you have, and you think about, let's say, personal time thinking. Like what, what is a normal day looking like? What are you doing? Who are you doing it with? And what's the goal of each part? So I think every activity that you do is like centered around a company because um, at the end of the day, it's like I actually don't spend a lot of time sitting in a chair, smoking a pipe, pondering the future <laughs> state of things, right? Because it kind of sounded like that. For <laughs> That's right. No pipe. Clean living. Clean living. <laughs> um, I think it's less about like us predicting the future and more us trying to like understand what's happening in the world. Um, and, and really the people who are sort of like inventing the future are the founders, like people that we mm -hmm. work with. So most of the time I spend my time thinking about companies. Like right now I could list for you six companies that are forcing me to think about things in a specific way and understand like, okay, well, what do I believe that this company is going to do, is going to work or whatever? Like those companies kind of center my thinking. Let's just to, to follow on that real quick. How did you get to know that these six companies existed? Um. I think that every, so like what you're talking about is like deal flow is how people describe it, right? Like where does your deal flow come from? Um, my firm is a little bit unique where most firms are, it's like either they have a strong enough brand and the people come to them or they're doing a lot of cold outbound and just reaching out to random people. Um, we're a little bit unique where we, Contrary manages a 500 person talent community. So there's hundreds of people that we've identified mm -hmm. from top companies, great schools, whatever. And we stay very close to them and they often give us signal into like what's interesting, whether it's like, what are the companies they're starting? What are the companies they want to go work at? Mm. If they're one of their sharp friends goes to work at a company, they tell us about it, whatever. So most of the companies that I find, it's because I've paid attention to some talent signal. There's some smart person who went to work somewhere or there is a really good company that produces good talent. We call them talent vortexes. Mm -hmm. So SpaceX is a talent vortex, right? Where there's tons of really, really smart people that work at SpaceX. I spend a lot of time spending or like paying very close attention to those talent vortexes. And then, okay, where do people leave when they go? So if I find a company that has, you know, 20 people and six of them came from SpaceX, that's interesting. I want to understand why that company has attracted so many good people. So is the, you sometimes hear about like, you have to have a thesis about the future, thesis driven investing. I think the future is going to be this. Let me see what companies fit into that. It sounds like what you're saying, and it's not binary is let me just talk with as many smart people as I can. They're seeing something so much so that they're starting a company around it or joining a company that surrounds that idea. And you're like, now that is a signal for me to be interested in it. Yeah. They basically talk about like three jobs that a VC has. It's finding interesting companies and then picking which companies to back. Cause we can, like, if I find six, I'm not necessarily going to choose to invest in all six of them. Mm -hmm. And then even if I pick the one of, you know, let's say I pick two of the six, I then have to win the right to invest in that company. Like I right. might pick those two, but they might not pick me mm -hmm. because they have other options and stuff. So finding, picking, and winning are largely the like jobs that every investor has to do. So I just happen to, on the finding side, 
we happen to do it a different way, which is very talent focused. We're mm -hmm. very focused on people and where are they going and what do we think of the people that are associated with the company. Firms like USV, Union Square Ventures, they have a very specific thesis-driven approach. So they'll literally sit down and they will bust out the pipe and imagine the future and say, I think that the future looks like this. And now I'm going to go try and find the companies that uh, mm -hmm. are doing that thing. Or, or you'll often see like incubations from firms like Lux or Founders Fund where they do the same thing. They sit down and they predict the future and then they try and go find somebody to build in the direction of the future they've seen. It's just a different strategy. And part of this is just an investor versus an operator, an investor mindset versus 90% of the people in the world who go in to their job to do a job. You execute that day and then you go home. You execute, you go home. It kind of sounds like theoretically you could spend your entire day, and you just said you don't, smoking a pipe, <laughs> thinking about the future, reading a lot of publications, and theoretically, you could be a very good venture capitalist. I think it's <laughs> Arthur Patterson, Patterson, who was an investor at Excel. Uh -huh. um, I think. Don't quote me on that. But uh, don't put it online on a video recording or anything. <laughs> this will be the TikTok. Um, that's right. Um, but somebody like that said that he talked about this idea of like having a prepared mind or a prepared mm -hmm. mind exercise. And it's this idea of like, we have spent a lot of time thinking about that thing, doing that, like smoking the pipe, reading mm -hmm. stuff, thinking about it, whatever. So that when a company appears and we have a prepared mind on certain things, we recognize that there's value in that. So like Got Excel, it. if I remember correctly, like one of the examples of this was Facebook, where Excel invested pretty early in Facebook. And they had a very prepared mind when it came to social media. And they had thought about like, what are the network effects that really drive a social network as opposed to like things that have been tried before, like MySpace and Friendster that maybe didn't work. They had spent the time disciplining themselves to understand social networks so that when they saw Facebook, they recognized this is something special. Some people would make that argument. I think that most people would argue that there's also like a significant element of luck in that, that mm -hmm. like Facebook could have gone really badly just as well <laughs> as it could have gone really well, right? Um, and so I think like a prepared mind can work to an extent, but then there's a question of like, how do you, how do you measure success and stuff? Like right. what is the scorecard for activities like that? So the, we covered this a little bit in when I interviewed uh, someone in private equity, but there's a lot of money out there that needs to be put somewhere. Pensions, high net worth individuals. One place to put it is venture capital. Everyone in venture capital competes, say, hey, give me that money. I can invest it really well. And then the mandate, how would you describe the mandate, is to find companies of varying sizes from one guy who hasn't even left their current job yet to start their new one, their new company, to maybe a company we've all heard of already but hasn't gone public. What are you, tr what are you trying to achieve? How would you talk about the mandate? So you can think about venture as like a value chain, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people make the argument that like founders are VCs customers. And to some extent that is true because I as a VC am building a product that is valuable for that founder, right? I'm, I'm creating value for them, whether that's just capital, okay. like I'm just, just giving them money. money. Okay. So it could be like my, like the customer interaction is me giving you money and that's it. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I've built some kind of talent or support or business development offering or whatever that's valuable for you. And I, I, I I understand that conceptually. People talk about that. In like economic terms, um, I am making money for my LPs, like my the, the pensions and endowments and stuff like that. They give me money. 
And so in many ways, they are my customer where they've mm -hmm. given me money and I have created a product for them. The product, it varies for every firm. So for the average venture firm, that product is taking their money, identifying those companies at various stages, in various sectors, whatever, investing that money, generating a return, and then giving back the return. And, I, and as a reward for that, I get to keep a certain percentage, mm -hmm. which is the same mm -hmm. thing as like a margin. Like when Walmart sells you something, they had to pay somebody to be able to get that thing. Right. And so their margin is what's left over. That's mm -hmm. my margin is whatever. Like I, in most firms, it's like 20%. Like whatever we make mm -hmm. in excess of what the money you gave me is, that 20% is what I get to keep as a VC. So there is like a value chain there. <clears throat> there is no like one size fits all venture firm. There's a lot of venture firms that are trying to be everything to everyone. So they'll invest across any stage and any sector. Like they'll be doing everything from crypto tokens to biotech, like pharma companies to application software to open AIs of the mm -hmm. world, right? You can invest across sectors and across stages where like you'll do everything from, you know, investing in very late stage companies that are maybe a year or two away from going public all the way down to the like person with an idea that you're giving money to even before they have an idea. Like you have to dictate your strategy. Like, where is our focus area? Mm -hmm. And then you hope that that strategy is effective. Like, just recently, somebody launched a $30 million venture fund whose explicit focus is on, like, fighting misinformation online. Like, that's their whole strategy. Like, it's very, very niche. So the it's only companies they're going to invest in are either directly or tangentially related to fighting misinformation. That's, that's right. the only people they'll talk to and invest in. That's right. So that's like a really niche $30 million fund that's focused on a very specific thing. Or you'll say the same thing. You'll see the same thing with like there are funds that are explicitly focused on longevity. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like increasing the average lifespan of a human being. And it's like Got a it. lot of pharma stuff and things like that. Um, but that's their only focus. And those are usually smaller funds because there's only so many right. longevity companies or misinformation companies mm -hmm. or whatever. And then you have like dramatically broad firms that are managing tens of billions of dollars, like I said, investing across stages, across uh, sectors and stuff like that. So it can be all over the map. If I'm starting a company or even joining a company, um, I am making a bet that my idea is good and I can execute it. It'll, it'll grow. It'll be valuable for the, long, let's say longevity. You're making the bet when you launch the longevity fund that a longevity will will be something, mm -hmm. will be valuable, that companies will emerge, that I will be able to invest in those companies and that those companies will do well. But the reason they'll pick me is because to accept my money is because I'm the longevity expert. Is that? Potentially, yeah, okay. if that's your strategy, right? It might be that you have really specific relationships with big pharma companies. So the companies that you invest in, they need to go through distribution with big pharma companies. Got and it. you were an uh, exec at a big pharma company for 30 years and you know everyone in the industry. And so they really want to take your money because you're really good at that. Or maybe somebody worked in the defense department for 30 years and then they raise a fund that's explicitly focused on investing in, in defense firms. Or you are contrary and you've built a multi-hundred person talent network. And as a startup, you want to focus on hiring the very best people. Totally. And we have a track record of placing really exceptional people in great companies. So everybody has their elevator mm -hmm. pitch. Let's say there's 100, 100 venture firms. 10 of them generate most of the returns. What is like an okay return? What's a bad return? If, if the number 100 VC on that list, someone started a venture capital firm, 
They raised money. They raised $100 million to invest in a lot of different companies. And then five years later, 10 years later, they've done what? So the worst are that you've lost money. Like anything below 1x, okay. you're, you've lost and you may never raise a fund again. Mm-hmm. The only exception is sometimes like, so you invest a venture fund over the course of two or three years. That's when you deploy it. Mm-hmm. But you keep the venture fund for 10 years because usually it's like you invest up front and then you wait. And so you wait. Which is a wild concept, by the way. That's crazy. Well, and what else you can do is you can invest in a bunch of companies that look like they're working or uh-huh. they're just so early that it's hard to tell. So you raise fund number, you invest for fund one for two years and then you wait. And then while you're waiting, you raise fund two and you invest that for two years and then you wait. You could be on your third or fourth fund before you've ever actually like seen an outcome, like seen a company get acquired or go public or whatever. And by that point, you've had many shots on goal. And so mm-hmm. even if your first fund is a zero or whatever, like a really bad return, maybe your second or third fund, you invested in some good companies and that can keep you going. But for the most part, if you invest in, if you raise a fund and you return less than the money that you mm-hmm. invested, then you probably won't keep, you won't stay in the right. business for very long, right? So like 1X is like baseline. You at least want to return the money and then most people benchmark to like the S&P 500. So like I could have just put my money in stocks. Totally. And what would that have return have looked like over the course of 10 years? Uh, the vast majority of venture funds don't beat the S&P 500. You, you would be better off just putting your money in, in the stock market. The difference is like the hubris of most venture, like VCs, myself included, is that you can be one of those top firms. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's an element of like, it's not the same 10 in everything. Mm-hmm. Like there, it kind of shuffles depending on strategy. But what you believe is that you can drive outsized returns, like better than the average person. But the the data indicates that the vast majority of people fail to do that. Interesting. So let's let's go from high level to very nitty gritty. I think it would be fun. Let's say I'm starting a company. I have an idea for an AI-informed, AI-backed recruiting tool, recruiting company, not tool. I am emailing a whole bunch of people in venture capital saying, hey, I've got a super interesting idea that's going to change the world and parentheses, but I'm not putting it also make you a lot of money and me a lot of money. I'm emailing that to like the entire venture capital community, correct? And you might get that email. I've gotten lots of those emails. Okay. Um, Do you what? For in that specific instance, I need money to start my company and you're one of the people who got the email. What, how are you reacting to that email? Um, in, that ex- in that exact example, the vast majority of people are probably not responding. And so a lot of VCs, the thing that gets criticized is that VCs often look for warm introductions. Like they actually don't really want people to cold email them. Like I, would, I, would, I don't know any of the numbers, the data. But I would imagine that like sub 10% of emails that come to an investor that are cold get responded to. And some of them are like super weird, borderline illegal, you know, <laughs> it can get really weird. There are a lot of firms like pride themselves on saying like, we don't accept warm intros. Because if you think about it, it's like, well, okay, well, who can I get a warm intro from? It's people that I know. Who do I know? Probably people that look like me, right? Yeah. And it's like white, upper middle class college. people went to the same, co- yeah, like one of, like, it's like, I think in, again, BYU, pride is not one of these schools. But I think something crazy, like 80 plus percent of VCs have gone to one of three schools. Jesus Christ. Um, and it's like Harvard, Stanford, and Penn or something like that, mm-hmm. um, which is insane. It's just these bubbles of people's personality. Harvard has filtered them. 
already. That's what you and think, then yeah. they're filtering for themselves and everyone just gets to stay together. That's right. Yeah, it's not great. So I recognize that that is like a problem, but that the reality is that like most introductions come from like, I respect so-and-so mm-hmm. and so-and-so introduced me to a company. And I even actively try and like curate relationships with people so yeah. that they trust me and they feel like they want to send me stuff. Or it's the same thing. I have people who... Like I write a lot and I put mm-hmm. out my writing so that people get to know me. And then those people who read my writing and like me, they will send stuff to me or whatever. KWHarrison13.com. <laughs> um, let's say it does get to you and you go, interesting. Out of all the warm intros and all the cold emails I've gotten, this is worth the conversation. What What's the bar for this is worth the conversation for you? So it goes back to the like finding, picking and winning, right? Like anytime I come across a company, I've technically found it, right? Whether it's like I just read about it in some article or whatever, um, or somebody sends it to me or anything. <clears throat> so any of those things can technically be finding. Mm-hmm. Picking is like how far you move it down the funnel. And that can be like, I get an email, I look at it, I make a judgment call. That's, that is actively me picking. I might be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. I should have taken that intro and I didn't. And like that goes on to be a great company. Or I spent too much time dil- like on this one mm-hmm. company that I, in the end, said no to and shouldn't have. Yeah, or I lose, right? Like I spent a ton of time with that company and that company decides to go a different direction right. and I lose. Like there's a, there, there's a huge funnel of opportunities for that company to fall off my radar. Um, again, I don't know what the numbers are in different firms or different for different people, but I would imagine that like over the course of a year, you might look at like, if you count anything you find, mm-hmm. which is like anything I read about, anything I email, anything I think about that's interesting, I see on Twitter that I save and look at later or whatever, any of those thousands of companies every year. And there are thousands of you. Yeah. Everybody's looking at different things and there's a whole network of people looking and making judgment calls and some people like something, some people don't, whatever. And there will obviously be overlap between some people, a lot of people liking the same company, which we can get to. But there are theoretically, and this is, I guess, more philosophical, the upside of venture capital, you are betting and giving money to me, an extremely high risk prospect. The odds of my company not being around in two years, three years, pretty damn high. Yeah, like 90 plus percent, right? There's a 90% chance I'm not going to be around and the money you gave me is gone. Yeah. And you go in and you're looking for companies like mine that have those odds, right? Yeah, I mean, that's like a, that's like the cost of doing business. Like Mm -hmm. you just acknowledge that that's true of any company. So I love this because in gambling, (laughs) in public market investing, if you have a 51% hit rate, you can do extremely well. Yeah. And yet here, it's like, yep, I know a lot of these aren't going to work, but there's going to be one bet or two bets, and I'm constantly trying to find 10 of which one could be that thing. Is that the right way to think about it? There are, so like, I think it's like 80% of company, 80% of startups fail outright, like mm-hmm. it just go to zero. Then there's like, or like of, an, of venture investments that you make, probably 80% of them go to zero, maybe... 10% of them or 15% of them are like middling outcomes mm-hmm. or like one or two X where it's like, we didn't lose money, but I like my LPs would have been better putting their money in the stock market. But then there is like that 5% of companies that cover everything else. Like it's, they are 10 X plus investments. And um, those, like, and what's interesting is we might know a lot of those companies, like the general public does end up hearing about that 5%. 
because unless they're in like enterprise software and sure. something like that. But there's a ton of companies that started as one of these companies that had a 90% chance of failing. Yeah, you'll never hear about them. you never hear about them. But then all of a sudden, this one did well. How many, this might be an unanswerable question, how many 5% companies have there been in the past 10 years, do you think? It is a good question. It's like, and because you can also broaden it to like, I think like Moderna raised venture money back in the day, right? It's like Got Apple it. raised venture money back in the day. So like there is a broad swath of companies that like you might not even think of as mm -hmm. like venture-backed startups, but technically they fall into that pocket and they stick around, right? Right. Um, so it is tough to say, but like maybe hundreds of companies, maybe. Hundreds of companies and there have been necessarily with that math. Yeah, what, I mean, I mean, 10,000 investments. Yeah, I mean, over the course of years and years, yeah. right? It's like there's thousands and thousands. So it is a tiny fraction of companies that end up becoming the like massive producers of outcomes. And when you, so you're starting to go down the pathway of I had a great, we had a great first conversation and you want to move forward. You're one of five people that I'm talking to. I emailed a thousand different people. <laughs> five got back to me and I've had a first conversation with all of them. For you, in terms of your day-to-day, -day, how am I in your mind space now as a company you've had a first conversation with? I So the, the way that, and I think most people spend kind of moving a company through the funnel, it very much depends on like um, sort of timeliness of the situation, right? So sometimes the first time we meet, you're like, I am actively raising right now and I need to finish raising within the next month or else I have issues or I, because I want to run this thing or I want to hire this person or to or bring my co-founder on. Yeah, whatever it is. <laughs> There's a bunch of reasons why. So if it's very timely, it, it, it might change and shove everything forward where it's like I'm trying to do in the course of two or three weeks a mm -hmm. ton of things. If it's something where it's like we're just going to know each other and you're not raising right now and I'm going to spend some time thinking about it, it might be more casual, but it also might be a little bit more in depth, right? So like I might spend more time going deep with you on a specific thing or if you're trying to hire somebody I might help you hire. Interesting. And it allows me not only to help you, and then that increases my odds of you picking me when you have those five people to choose from if they all end up you know, converting into an offer. Um, but also it helps me get to know you, where it's like, I'll help you hire so I can see who you hire. And if I don't think very highly of the way that you hire, the people that you hire or whatever, like your heuristics for making decisions or whatever, that informs my decision. So the more time you have, the more you're able to build a relationship and that informs your ability to like pass judgment on the company. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are companies that you know, you might know for years before they're in your strike zone. And so hmm. you have to like radically optimize your day for who am I going to spend time with that progresses a specific relationship because I think what they're doing is really interesting. How do you sit down and prioritize that day given how many people you know and how many companies you could be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's one of the reasons why venture often gets kind of compared to like a sales job, mm -hmm. right? So it's like if you have a sales pipeline, right? you have tools to help you keep track of stuff. It's like, mm -hmm. when did I last talk to this person? What did we do? What did they say? What do they focus on? Whatever. So most investors have the same thing. They have like a pipeline of companies where it's like, here are the companies that I think are going to raise soon. I need to prioritize those. And then here are the companies that I think most highly of, but they're not going to raise soon. I still need to prioritize those, but maybe not as much as the ones who are going to raise soon. Then I have these companies that like I kind of think are interesting and whatever. Like I, I have to first prioritize the companies. And then for those companies, I have to prioritize like what am I going to do for them that is going to move the needle, right? And it's like, can I help them with specific things? Can I do certain? And, and then there's also things independent of helping the company that I need to do just to be able to like deepen my understanding of that company. So, so how would you, for me, 
let's say I'm the first that in this case, my example was a bad one, but an AI enabled recruiting company. What are you doing besides company analysis with thematic or sector or industry analysis to, I, am I riding a wave? Mm. What ra- wave am I riding? And is this company able to ride that wave? How do you think about that? The first thing that you do is like, I would go talk to 20 recruiters, right? Like whoever you would sell your thing to, I'm going to go talk to them and I'm going to say, would this help you? Like if this did this thing, would that actually be helpful to you? Do you think you, this, again, this is a bad example. Let's say it's a rare earth minerals mining software company. You don't know anyone in this space. Are you just hitting them up on LinkedIn, random experts? Sometimes there are also like expert networks that exist. So like uh, companies that exist that I pay money to. And I'll say, hey, you go find me some random rare it. minerals expert so that I can talk to them and then I'll pay you know, 500 bucks and you take a cut or whatever. Gotcha. So you're getting up to speed on the space. There's a chance you just say no because you don't want to get up to speed on that space, right? Is yeah. There... So Warren Buffett has this quote about, he talks about he has a too hard pile. It's like, it doesn't mean it's bad. It mm-hmm. just means it's too hard for me. Like I'm not, I'm not going to think, I'm not going to figure that out. Got it. I'm not going to touch that particular business. There are things that are like that. Like I think VCs are getting more comfortable with capital intensive businesses. Mm-hmm. But for a long time, it was 100% focused on like software and mobile apps and stuff like that. If you told me you have to buy any physical anything, I'm out. Like I'm, I'm not interested because it's just too expensive and it's too scary. Maybe you have to raise debt and debt is mm-hmm. scary. More VCs are uncomfortable with that. We've, we've invested in a number of companies that have hardware or manufacturing operations or like physical CapEx. But to each their own, like every VC will decide what goes in their too hard pile. And so on the company side, you've talked to a lot of recruiters and like, oh, my God, if if Colby could build this, that would be incredible. I would this I would buy that in a second. Interesting. There's something here. What risks are you looking at in terms of the company? Mostly in the early days, I'm vetting your ability to build that thing. So like I would go reference check you and I would talk to people you've worked with before. And I would say, is Colby capable of building something like this? And like, if you're an engineer, it's sussing out your technical capabilities. If you're not an engineer, it's sussing out your ability to go hire somebody who's technical. Because eventually, the rubber right. has to hit the road. Somebody has to build the thing. <laughs> like, we can all have great ideas, but we've got to build it's it. A, but it's a great PowerPoint. It's really good. <laughs> That's right. And so eventually, I am sussing out, like, can you actually build this, either yourself or hire the people that are capable? And also, can this be built? Like, I'm trying to get a sense mm-hmm. of, like, all right, well, are you going to use a specific a specific set of tools to help you build this thing. And if you're like, yeah, I'm going to use GPT, you know, open AIs, whatever. Then it's like, okay, I need to go figure out like, well, that's going to require like fine tuning for specific recruiting tools. Or it's like, well, recruiting requires a lot of LinkedIn data and LinkedIn does not want you to have their data. Their API is And so can you, yeah, totally. So can you actually, can you build a model that would help your recruiting tool if you can't get access to LinkedIn data, mm-hmm. how are you going to do that? Like, I'm going to ask you all these technical questions about how you plan to build it. So the ability to build, you might get a lot of dreamers. I am going to reshape the home building business. Oh, like, do you know that wood is involved and mm-hmm. that you have to source that wood? Like, there is a capacity of when you move out of the software, actually, even software space, it can be so advanced. Would you ever take a bet that they will figure it out because they're ahead of a trend in technology that will be ready in like three or four years. Maybe, probably not like that level of like, who knows? Because there is such a thing as like being right, but early and therefore wrong. 
And so there is an element of like, you can't be so far ahead of the curve that like, it's just not possible, right? Like not everybody has the patience of James Cameron to wait 10 years <laughs> before you make a sequel because the technology has to catch up right. or whatever. Like most people, if I'm going to fund you, I'm going to be paying your bills. And if it takes four years before that thing is possible, what am I doing? I'm just paying you your bills for four years while you twitter uh -huh. your thumbs waiting for technology to catch up. There is an element of like, I need to be confident that you can do this thing. Mm. Um, but then sometimes there is an element of like, I think that we can figure this out. Like maybe they don't have every aspect of it figured out, but you're trying to get a sense of like, can't, like, are they just generally, like, are you sharp enough to figure it out, to solve the problems, yeah. whatever. I also think that then you would move from, okay, I think that they could build this. Maybe they've got some stuff to figure out, but I think they could build it. People want it. I think they can build it. Who else is building it? Like who would they have to go compete with? Mm -hmm. And that is both like status quo. Like are there, are there recruiting agencies they have to compete with? Are there um, other like software providers that are selling recruiting software? But maybe it's not AI driven, but Still, it is valuable. It works really well. Yeah. Even though humans are doing it. Yeah. So I'm going to go look at all those things and say, is their capability to build something going to be so much better than what's out there that people would be willing? Because that person can say, I would love that. Right. But you also want to talk to people who are making the buying decision. And that's not necessarily always the right. end user, right? It's like the recruiter might say, I'd love this. But the like head of recruiting is like, we don't have the budget for that. Mm -hmm. I don't care how much you would like it. Um, and so you often have to, have to understand, like, is there market demand? When I say, when you said pre-seed, seed, series A, series B, I think most people imagine that a company with no revenue and has just starting is infinitely more risky and, as, and infinitely more likely to be a zero than a company with 10 million of revenue. But you see, depending on where you choose to invest, a company with 10 million in revenue, 100 million in revenue, zero in revenue, all those companies fail all the time. And so how do you, how would you describe the challenges? Because inherently as a person, zero revenue, that seems super risky. 100 million, doesn't everyone like them? Why wouldn't everyone invest in them? How would you explain that concept? Um, so there is like a sliding scale of like, risk to reward, if mm -hmm. you will, of like a particular investment. High risk, your reward goes higher. So the, the odds of you failing when you're zero revenue, just getting started, whatever, super high risk. But if I invest early, I mean, there are people that like Lance Armstrong made like $150,000 investment in Uber. And I think it ended up being worth like $40 million or something, right? Jesus. It's like huge risk because he invested yeah. super early but like massive outcome, like the X factor on that investment is massive, right? And so then as you move up a company's life and it has 10 million of revenue or whatever, like that company is less likely to go to zero. But can. It could go to zero for sure. Like and, there's and lots does. of businesses. It actually doesn't, I, I actually think like once you cross a certain threshold, companies don't just die easily hmm. unless they have like fundamentally bad business models. So that's one of the reasons VCs are scared of debt because debt is one of the things that will kill you. Like you have to pay interest. Right. And if your revenue is fluctuating or whatever and you can't make interest payments, you're screwed. But if you're just like a company that generates a little bit of revenue and like you're not crushing it, you're not exploding, but it's just software. Like it's not that, you don't have that many costs. And right. if you could fire most of the people and just keep living, like that, like there are a lot of technology companies that become lifestyle businesses where it just kind of- Are you allowed to going. be a lifestyle business? Yeah. Given- Given the you invested in me, yeah, five years in, I got I'm ten not, million of revenue. That's right. I'm not happy, right? <laughs> if you suddenly flipped the switch and you said this thing prints money for me, 
I'm not happy about it because I was shooting for a big right. outcome, right? But that happens a lot. If like, I have control, then I'm allowed to do it. Yeah. Got it. Uh, yeah, like if your investors own more than like a majority share in your business, they could force you to sell the company so that they can make a little bit of like get their liquidity. People turn it. I, for some reason, thought that was just not allowed. Yeah. People turn it a lifestyle business. Even sometimes people will do like dividends over time, right? So they'll like, mm -hmm. if they're profitable, they will right. pay their investors back each year a little bit out of their profit to be able to get that investor whole. But it take, probably takes several years right. to pay them off. And so their IRR, which is like measuring the return over time, goes down. But hopefully they're getting like a certain X factor of return that it's good enough for mm -hmm. them, right? So that happens not, you know, I don't know, not the majority of the time, right? Like, again, like a lot of companies fail. But once you get to a certain threshold, there's very few companies, like a, maybe a good example, and I have, no, I have not ever invested in this company. I've never really worked with this company. Um, but there are two companies that were like, it's just a very interesting story, Envision and Figma. Mm -hmm. And so these are companies that build software for prototyping. So if I am like a product designer and I want to build a product, I can prototype it in these tools and play around with it. So we make sure like the screen looks like we want it to and the buttons do what they want, whatever. And so for a long time, so Figma started after Envision. Mm -hmm. Envision got, they basically do very similar things. They took a little bit of a different approach, but operate in the same space. Envision got started earlier and grew way faster. So by the time Figma was maybe four million of revenue, Envision was like a hundred million of revenue. Um, and every for a lot for a lot of people, they thought, well, Envision is the clear winner. Why would we ever invest in Figma? Fast forward, whatever it's been, six seven years, Envision has again. I don't know where they're at. It's still around though as a company, but Figma is a dramatically better business. Like just dramatically. Like mm -hmm. Envision is is smaller than they were from an employee count. Again, I don't know what their revenue is, but I imagine it's not growing super fast. Like there's a lot of things that went wrong with Envision to the point where Envision is no longer likely to become the outcome that its investors wanted it to be. But it's not just going to, they're not just going to be like, we we tried and then just shut down a $50 million revenue business. Mm -hmm. Like you do something with it, you figure it out. Right. You, and you would have been thrilled. You would have told people, yeah, I invested in Envision. Yeah, and people would respond, oh, that's going to be super good for you guys. And then it just, mm -hmm. and then someone else comes. You mentioned Lance Armstrong. And I think from a mentality standpoint, this is super interesting. When I email you with my company, let's say it hasn't started yet. Let's say it has 5 million in revenue, whatever it is. If 90% of the population got that email, a lot of people will be, oh my God, this is my opportunity. And they look at, oh, I could be a billionaire. This is, <laughs> I could get a, this is the next thing. I, I can't believe I got this opportunity. I feel like it is human nature to get very excited, especially when they hear all these stories about Facebook and, and all of that in the news and startup billionaires. Would you say your initial reaction after being in the seat for as long as you have is initial skepticism or is it initial promise? I think that you would get really depressed in this job if you <laughs> were just like immediately like skeptical. I, I think it's like, I, I would describe it as analytical optimism. Okay. Like you're like, I'm optimistic. Like I'm curious to hear how it goes, right? Like, but I am going to be analytical. I'm going to ask you like, what about this? What about this? What about that? If you're pitching me on a company that sells software to typewriter repair shops, I'm immediately going to be like, I'm struggling to see where it's at, you know? What don't so, I know? Yeah. So there is definitely like, it, there are instances where it's difficult to be optimistic. Mm -hmm. But in general, I try and take a very curious Got approach. It. And you mentioned sales. It's like sales, um, especially with the funnel. In that sense, you are part of a firm that has multiple 
GPs, general partners, in in your analogy, multiple salespeople, all with their own funnel. But you don't, I don't think you get to close it on your own because it is the firm's capital. What happens when it gets to the very end of the funnel and everyone needs to decide, we have $100 million and we're going to give 10 of it to this company? So every firm is different. Every firm has different decision-making processes. I have been at firms where it is it is pretty dictatorial, if that's a word. Like it is one person making a call and everybody else is like pitching that person and that person decides yes or no. That's like a single manager on top. Yeah. Thank you for all your ideas. I'm going to choose which ones I like. And a lot of times it's like a billionaire, like founding and partner or whatever, uh, right? Like it's like that. this is that guy's firm and we know who we work for and we're pitching that mm-hmm. guy. Um, I've also worked at firms that are like super egalitarian where every single partner votes on every deal. And it's like, you can be, you can vote one through 10, how much you like it. 10 being you love it. You want to drop everything and invest in this company. One being like, this is garbage. I hate you for bringing it in. And maybe you can't be a five or a six. Like they don't want anybody in the middle. It's like, either you like it or you don't. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you vote. And then maybe the average score has to be above a six, right? Like super where there are like, you could have a very senior partner who's maybe made billions of dollars for the firm and for its LPs. And that person gets shot down because they couldn't get the votes. Interesting. Like there's a there's a broad spectrum of ways that people make decisions. Contrary is um, sort of independent, right? Where each individual general partner has check writing ability, where if I want to do something, I can do it. Like I don't need everybody else's buy-in. Now, that doesn't engender me a lot of like goodwill with my partners <laughs> if I'm just like, F you, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing whatever yeah. I want, right? Like I respect my partners, which is why I work with them. And so basically every time I'm going to take into account their perspective when I'm making a decision. But at our firm, we want everybody to be able to make contrarian mm-hmm. investment decisions. Nice. Uh, as we start to wrap up, if I'm 25 years old, I go into venture capital, what am I not thinking about? What are the misconceptions that I'm having that most people get wrong when they join the industry? I think that most people think that venture investors know more than they actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think that's the biggest misconception is that, like, capital equals expertise or knowledge or power or whatever. Um, most VCs are pretty stupid. Like, everybody's pretty stupid, right? Like, right. in the grand scheme of things, we all make really bad decisions. And like no one knows psych- the future. Yeah. Like, our psychology is super messed up, too, right? Like, we make decisions that go against our own Mm-hmm. like well-being and stuff like there's a myriad of reasons why we're all pretty stupid vcs are also pretty stupid but one of the reasons that they are often dumber than the average person is because they are inhaling their own hype so like founders look at me and they say well you have capital i want capital i don't have capital you must know something that i don't know because you have capital and so i'm going to like be deferential to you because you have capital and vcs think yeah I do have capital. You're right. Like, I do know what I'm talking about. And they'll give really dumb advice Mm. or they'll be very wrong about things or whatever. Like, they're way more wrong than they are right. You're actually probably wrong 80% of the time, Mm. 90% of the time, right? If all of your companies are going to zero, like, you must have been wrong. Right. Um, So you're wrong a lot. There's this idea that venture investors, their whole job is like pattern recognition, right? Mm -hmm. And so they want the longer you're in the game, arguably, the more data you have to draw more patterns. And so you can say like, oh, I remember when I saw... Zuckerberg in his pajamas, and I, like, I'm looking for that again and again and again. Right? right. The more people you've seen, the more you can recognize, like, oh, this is what good companies look like. This is how good companies grow. This is how they start, whatever. 
And usually what that pattern recognition is, is actually just like a very lazy heuristic, like shorthand for the same thing. Like it's not patterns, it's looking for like duplication. So you don't want, you don't want like somebody who has these characteristics that Mark Zuckerberg had at that age. You're literally looking for a nerdy white dude from Harvard who learned to code when he was 12 and his parents are rich and blah, blah, Mm. blah. Like you're literally looking for identically the same thing. And that gets you into problems like FTX, where you Mm. think you're recognizing patterns, but you're actually like, you're fitting molds. Like I think that most people think that VCs say, well, they must know something that I don't know. Mm -hmm. And it's like, most of the time, that's not true. Like they're just shooting from the hip and trying to figure stuff out along with you. Well, Kyle, this has been awesome. Thank you for stopping by. Thanks for having me. It's super fun to talk about. As I think of all the things in venture capital that if you're in the bubble, everything seems obvious. All the nomenclature is uh, at the tip of your tongue. Everyone talks VC, everyone talks tech. I think outside of that bubble, there's this world of like, wait, people do what with what money and fail how much and still sometimes do well after a decade. You broke it down incredibly well. So I appreciate you doing that. This has been Kyle Harrison at Contrary, walking us through what he does in his day-to-day life as a venture capitalist. This has been Colby Howard, Monster Job. Appreciate you watching. We'll see you next week. Bye.